Hello and welcome. I'm Eric. And I'm John. And this is the Wikipedia Chronicles. This is a podcast where we start with a random article, explore it, then follow the links and see where it takes us. So, John, what is your random article today? Geez, Eric, your voice seems to kind of have dipped down a little bit since the intro. I mean, you were a second ago, you were fine. Now, mm -hmm. yes, well, (laughs) I happened to have gone through puberty between the two. All right. Wow. That was, man, I was waiting for that. I mean, I didn't know when that was going to happen. I've known you. Since high school, and I was just kind of like, when is Eric going to hit it? I didn't expect it was going to be on this momentous episode, I suppose, of yeah. Wikipedia Chronicles. Well, yeah. That's, took that's a while, but then all of a sudden <laughs> it just, just came all at once. <laughs> Great. So anyway. Yeah, sorry, that was off topic. <laughs> um, my article today, Eric, is uh, Castle in Hagley Park. Ooh. The Folly Castle in the park of Hagley Hall. I'm not sure what the Folly Castle is, but there's a link to that, too. <laughs> Uh, it is the largest building in Hagley Park, and it's also a grade two listed, oh, grade two asterisk listed building huh. in the uh, United Kingdom, uh, in case that is not established. Interesting. They don't actually tell you where this is located. Like, they give you no country or hmm. like town. <laughs> they just assume you know what Hagley Hall is and where it's at. Wow. Well, for my article, I got Polenia rudis, which is a common cluster fly, (laughs) and (laughs) it is a species of fly in the family Califoridae. So yeah, just a little little fly, looks kind of like, oh, it's also known as an attic fly. Really? So, it's kind of interesting little guy there. Well, let's see. We've done our fair share of buildings. That's true. We've done some bugs, but I don't think we've done a lot of bugs. I feel like we've done we defi- less bugs than buildings. True. And we definitely haven't covered flies yet. Mm-mm. So. Um, you know what? Let's do this thing. Let's go for some fly guys. Fun. Super fly. Okay, what's it, what's it called? I, I searched for attic fly. Polenia. Oh, it is that the first result. Great. Yep. All right, Polenia rudis. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's kind of a as flies go. It's not as nasty looking as a lot of them are. Yeah, it seems a little more buggy than flyy. You know, I mean, it's a weird thing to say. Let me let me, <laughs> let me describe what I mean. There's some more like color to it. It doesn't look like gross and shiny yeah. and slimy like some flies do. It doesn't look like it's just been living in the muck. Yeah, it's for just it's not life. born of trash. <laughs> it is not in a trash bag. Yeah. Like flies, half the time look like the homeless denizens of the insect world, <laughs> but uh, this this one actually it's looks like, like a, a middle class insect. Yeah, rather definitely. than a. You know, lower class insect. Right. Definitely a step up. Definitely doing okay for himself. That That's the kind of fly that we're talking about here with Polonia rudis, a common cluster fly. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of interesting. I like the little picture. Mm-hmm. It's very, very, like, detailed picture and close up. And his legs kind of, his back legs kind of look like a, like a frog or something. Can see them through the wings. Yeah, they're kind of tucked underneath there, aren't they? Looks like he has a little lion's mane going Mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. Cool looking little fly, really. Yeah. So, this species is uh, distributed throughout the United States, Canada, and Europe, and is considered a pest species. Oh, okay, well, that's not (laughs) great. Uh, It's considered a pest species in structures. (coughs) In structures? That's the end of the. In structures. In all structures. In all structures. Any structure. Any structure. So if it was in mm-hmm. here, even though he would be like honor honorary guests that we're talking about. Right. 
one of the few on Wikipedia Chronicles we actually like welcome in and say, "Hey, how you doing?" <laughs> but I guess in in, an, in any other like house, it'd probably be unwelcome. Yeah, most likely. <sighs> oh shoot! So this fly can be found wherever their host earthworm, the Alolobophora genera of uh, earthworm occurs. And those earthworms are typically located in well-drained silt loam soil with grass cover. During the summer, P. rudis, for or you know, short for Paulina rudis, can be found in fields and open areas. It is only where there is a sudden drop in temperature that the cluster fly shifts to the interior of structures, hotel holes in trees. Not hotels in trees. <laughs> no hotels in those trees. It holes up in the trees, though. Uh, uh, or it can hole up in loose bark or other crevices and cavities. So, I guess these guys must just lay their eggs and stuff and earthworms and just chill out until they're fully grown and pop mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. That's cool. And yeah, it says the common name cluster fly was derived from the clustering behavior in adults of the species in attics and lofts. So I guess they all just kind of gather together around and, you know, just kind of hang out together. They're social. <clears throat> yeah. They're, they're bar flies, you know. Yeah. And uh, they also have a common name, buckwheat fly, which is derived from the odor of buckwheat honey that the species gives off when they are crushed. So that's kind of interesting. I feel like as a living being, you wouldn't want to give off the scent of honey when you're crushed. Probably not, but I mean... Maybe. I mean, think about it. Bees, they vomit honey, granted. Mm-hmm. But they also use it as, like, lifeblood. Like, a, a bee's, mm-hmm. like, feeling yeah. pretty crappy. You can get get some honey, and it's kind of like, okay, cool, food. Mm-hmm. Um, so, maybe the logic there is it smells like honey to draw, like, bees toward whatever's crushing it to so it can, like, be uh, like, yeah, you can crush me, but you're going to get stung true. by something. Could be, yeah. You could see that. I just feel like the um, the stink bug really has the right idea. Yeah, just get like them out of any, there. Anything, just get them away. Anything starts you. crushing those things, and they're like, "Nope, gonna just walk away." Yep. not even worth it. That's the that's the <laughs> primary. Like, I don't really know how it's a defense mechanism though, because it protects others of your species. It yeah. doesn't protect you. <laughs> you have to die to have that you know yeah. smell arise. So I'm not really sure if it's like it's not ideal. <laughs> Yeah. It, helps, it helps those around It'd be better you to give you. off the stink before you mm-hmm. even get crushed. Right. Like a skunk. Skunk really has the yeah, right idea. They have they have it down. Yeah, they've figured out the secret. Although, I don't know, I guess if you went around stinking pretty bad, then maybe other people wouldn't like to be around you, so... I had that experience in high school. <laughs> um, but yeah, this Polenia rudis was actually first documented by Johann Christian Fabri- Fabricius. Yes. In 1794. So that's a good while that's, ago. Yeah. And at the time, he listed the genera and species as Musca rudis. And I think Musca is like a di- just a different family of fly. Mm-hmm. Um, but the taxonomy was changed in 1830, so like 40 years later almost, by Andre John Baptiste Robineau Desvoidi to Polenia Rudis. And the change was uh, suggested by the pollen of flowers, the Polenia, that's what it means. Um, occurred for muskids having, among other features, the thorax covered in down-like clothing. So I guess that's they literally changed it because it looks like he's wearing a jacket. Yep, because of the fact that he looks a little bit, you know, like a bee. Yeah. <laughs> he uh, just because he has that kind of fuzzy, fuzzy exterior, he gets the same treatment. Now the cluster fly. 
is a European species originally, but it I mean, we don't really know when it showed up in the United States. But the species gained particular attention in the U.S. when Dr. W.H. Dahl of the Smithsonian Institution published an article in the Proceedings of the United States National Museum for 1882. Hmm. Dr. Dahl secured some specimens of Polania rudis for identification, and Dr. Dahl also documented the species' appearance in Geneva, New York, 30 years prior to the post publication, so it's been here since at least the 1850s. Wow. Now, Paul Ru- Polania rudis may have been introduced to the United States upon slow-sailing vessels in the cooler months of the year that traveled from Europe. And this is possible due to the hibernation behaviors of the adult clusterflies to seek shelter for overwintering. That would make sense, because they're known for, like, gathering together in attics and stuff, so if right. you have a big barge, you know, you just... They're all, like, holed up in some small little dark corner somewhere. Exactly. I mean, it's just an attic turned upside yeah. down in the middle <laughs> of the ocean. That's where the barge is. Yep. <laughs> yeah, they... It says they also could have been transported to North America in the ballast of ships containing soil and the clusterfy host earthworms. So I guess it's just any kind of earthworm? Or is it... Did it say a specific... Yeah, it did mm-hmm. say the Alalabafara. Alalabafara, yeah. That's the the guy that they have to have around. That's what they respect. I wonder what that thing looks like. I'm just going to have to Google it because they don't have a link to it. Which is weird. It's an earthworm, so you would think that that would be, that'd be covered here. But Wikipedia is really picky and choosy about <laughs> what animals they do and don't have in, yeah. their, in their knowledge. Okay, so this Alalabafara is your garden variety earthworm. Like, basic of the basic. The ones you see, you know, slewn about the ground after a rainstorm or crawling around in your soil. So, yeah, this is the very, very common kind. See, to me... Now I'm questioning their commonality because it said there that uh, this earthworm has to be present for these flies to be present. Mm-hmm. These flies are only in North America and Europe. Mm. So, A, now those worms from Europe get over here. Why are they everywhere? <laughs> and B, why are they everywhere else? I thought they were everywhere. <laughs> yeah, maybe they're only like a North American or and European species of earthworm. That's kind of weird. I don't really know. I really don't know that much about other species of earthworms. Yeah. Kind of wanna, kind of wanna figure that out now. I mean, I figure they're probably gonna be about the same, just varying. <laughs> probably, links. yeah. Like you got a couple of tremors style yeah. worms, <laughs> like those size worms out there, all the yeah. way down to like trolley gummy gummy worms type mm-hmm. type size worms. You know. Yeah, I know. I've seen different places that there are some pretty huge worms out there. Like, like worms that are probably as long as like an anaconda. Hmm. Now that just seems impractical. <laughs> All right. So they have some distinctive markings that kind of set them apart from other species. They can differ in thoracic coloring, basicosta coloring, and spherical coloring. Hmm. Size and shape are aids in identification. Polynia rudis eggs are oblong-shaped, and they're very small and white. So they kind of look like very, very tiny chicken eggs? Little chicken eggs. Like little little tiny chicken (laughs) eggs. (laughs) Kind of want to see those now. Yeah, I wish they would have, like, a few more visual aids in this article. It's kind of devoid. It's all text. Uh, The Polynia rudis larvae are white with posterior spiracles. And the adult Polynia rudis looks much like most of the other Polynia species, such as Palladia and Dasilopoda. Dasilpoda. I'm pretty sure Dasilpoda is the common <laughs> housefly, but I'm not positive. Um, they are dark gray with checkered black and silvery black abdomens. A new emerged fly has many golden hairs on its thorax, which mm. may be lost throughout the life of the fly. Huh. Um, the stripes on the thorax are not as prominent as on the house fly, and the tips 
of the wings overlap when at rest. The cluster fly is slightly larger than the house fly at 9.525 through about 12.7 millimeters long. Hmm. The similarities between Palladia and Rudis are seen in the female specimens. Palladia, 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 sorry, Pallida, there we go, wow, <laughs> okay. Palladia Pallida has a broad, flattened facial keel. Palladia Dasloda has a black head with yellow tint on the fronds. The Basicasta can be found in many colors, ranging from yellow to light to brown. Oh, this is weird. This article has links to other websites? What do you mean? That uh, black head links to a completely different website than Wikipedia, not an article. Really? Yes, it does. That's unusual. Yeah, Is that supposed that. to happen? I don't know. I feel like that shouldn't be. I guess it, because it has that little symbol beside it, the little box yeah, with but the arrow. Usually all those kind of links are way at down the at bottom. the bottom. There's several, though, yeah. There's Aristate. Typically they're like the, you know, references, and you just see the little number. Yeah. And then the link itself goes to another article within Wikipedia. And then if you want to go to the website, then you travel down the page and click on the reference, and then it takes you out. But this is weird. References out are, like, right in the middle of everything here. Yeah. Hmm. Is that new? I don't think I've seen that before. You're right. Yeah, I don't remember seeing that before, but that's weird. Maybe it is something new. I mean, it clearly hasn't supplanted any of the normal citations. Yeah. All of those are still there. Mm-hmm. Little numbers everywhere, as per usual. But it's just some of the links to the other articles do not link to things on Wikipedia or any variant thereof. It's just a place called bugguide.net in some instances. <laughs> Everything about .net. What happened here? It looks like this article's been attacked by some sort of spam. Hmm. It's weird. No, not, not all of it. Some of it's legitimate... Uh, university website links, too. Yeah. I'm very confused. Hmm. Ooh, you know what it could be? Hmm. Oh, I don't know. But maybe Wikipedia has found a new way of funding, and they're doing that thing that some websites do where they'll just have a whole bunch of different words in the article Mm -hmm. linked to random, like, websites. To try to generate ad revenue or something. Or, like, link... Revenue. I don't really know if it would be ad revenue because they're not showing any ads. But right, yeah. It would be like clicks. You'd have to click on it. And it could be. I don't know. But I guess we should get back to the fly. Yes. Back uh, to our Paltran Palania Brutus here. Uh, behavior. It uh, varies with the annual seasons and conditions of the day. Uh, during the summer, these flies can be found without much trouble. With When it's cold, these flies tend to hide. We already know that, Wikipedia. Thank you. <laughs> Food sources. Earthworms. Well, there's a surprise. Uh, but the main species of earthworm that these cluster flies infect are oh. Aparectoda caliginosa. Yeah. And there's a link to that one, but it's outside of Wikipedia again. Uh, Tastes of the Natural History Museum in and the United it Kingdom. Even, it's not even like it's just the Natural History Museum. Yeah, there's it's, no. It's not the article or anything. It's nothing. Well, that's not very helpful. Wow. It's uh, immediately after the larvae hatch, they also begin looking for worms. So it's not just wow. a matter of hatching them; they <laughs> have just some worm hunger in them. <laughs> Just they're born with a bloodthirst for earthworms. They're just gonna kill all the earthworms. <laughs> uh, the first instar larvae eat their way through the integument section of the earthworm's epidermis. While feeding, the larvae leave the spiracles outside of the earthworm. Inside the earthworm, the larvae feed until they are ready to pupate. The adults are, in most cases, herbivores. Oddly hmm. enough, well, they feed on many types of organic matter from plant sap, fruit, 
uh, to flowers and feces. Well, yeah, well, I mean, the <laughs> flies, come on. Yeah, flies gotta eat something. Though, and nobody else is gonna eat feces. Well, except for a couple things. Yeah, and at that point, I have to wonder if they're gonna eat feces, and the feces is of things that ate other creatures, then. Mm. Are they really herbivores? This really depends on the fly. It's true. You know. But yeah, they uh, they are also attracted to malt extract, acetyl acetate, and the proteins within animal meat. So, so they don't they, want meat, <laughs> but they want the stuff that holds the meat together. Yeah. So they're That's like, contradictory. They're like, hmm, I want all the stuff in the meat, but I don't want the meat. So I'm just going to eat other stuff. Um, but they do have predators. The Entomophthora muscae, which is a fungus that commonly infects adult flies. And this fungus causes a disease within the fly that results in a swollen abdomen. Hmm. And then the swollen abdomen makes the wings and legs spread apart and ultimately causes the fly to have trouble flying. And then after some time, it loses the ability to fly altogether. And then uh, without this, the fly has no way of protecting itself from predators. And so the main predator of the P. rudis larvae is the sphesid wasps, which is another outside link. These wasps will sting the fly and inject some poison. And once the fly has died, the wasp will feed the fly to their young. Hmm. And they are there are also a couple of other generalist predators, such as ants, birds, and actually plants. But yeah, carnivorous plants, I assume. Not just common plants. But they... Their life cycle is actually different between Europe and North America. In Europe, it takes 10 to 12 months for an egg to fully develop into an adult, and it results in one generation per year. And the adults of European origin copulate in the autumn, and then they lay their larvae lay, lay dormant in the bodies of earthworms over the winter. And then the larvae will then molt twice over approximately 20 days and then pupate outside the host. And usually the pupal stage lasts from 32 to 45 days, but at high temperature, it lasts, it only lasts seven days. But then uh, in North America, the eggs require actually 27 to 39 days to fully develop into an adult. So, that's that's uh, quite a difference. A little bit. Because it says Europe, it takes 10 to 12 months for an egg to fully develop into an adult. North America, 27 days. Yep. That's, <laughs> yep. that's, that's a way of fraction of the time. And they're supposed to be the same species? I don't understand why that is. Yeah. Is it because it's that much warmer here? Or... Could be. Maybe it's just rainier in Europe or something. I don't know. Maybe our earthworms are meatier. Could maybe they be. just, like, you know, they get they get a good start. They get better nutrients when they're early on. Mm. You know, when the tykes, when the tykes get good stuff early on, they grow up so fast, it's like lightning. It's like super <laughs> quick. Yeah, and then uh, in North America, they also uh, copulate in spring, and then go from there. So, maybe that's the difference. Maybe it's just like, the if they lay their eggs in autumn, then it's just like, eh, it's winter now, screw it, I'm just gonna lay dormant for a while. But... If they do it in spring, then it's like, oh, it's actually kind of nice outside. Maybe I'll go out. Yeah, I think that's kind of, that's already 
part of the reason. I mean, it must have something to do with the fact that they have to like slow down to the point yeah. where they can go dormant, that they have to like wake back up from that too. So it takes so much longer. Mm-hmm. Just starting starting it all in the spring and doing it all in the spring, much faster. Yeah. Gets everything done up front. All business, these cluster flies. <laughs> all business. Alright, so as far as what these flies mean for us, because, I mean, they're not the common house fly. Yeah. And they're not horse flies. They're attic flies. Which, to me, I mean, you know, I don't remember there being different flies in my attic <laughs> versus the flies in other places of my house, but whatever. Yeah. Um, but regardless, this fly also is known for being a household nuisance. Hmm. Uh, first reports of cluster flies in homes as pests occurred as early as the 19th century, which seems like it would be earlier to me. Like, like, wouldn't we have started caring about this <laughs> sooner? Like, didn't, or maybe, like, it wasn't until then that humans had evolved and gotten nice enough things that flies were, like, actually yeah. bothersome. Like, Could before, be. it was kind of like, well, it's a fly. <laughs> oh. Um... But they continue to cause pests today. I can t- I deign to say problems, but it says that they cause problems. Um, cluster flies tend to enter homes and buildings in large masses in late summer or early autumn to seek shelter for the winter months. They possess the ability to squeeze their bodies through the through pretty much any cr- exterior crevices of a home, such as cracks around doors and windows, air conditioning vents, screening vents, and loosely hung siding. And once the cluster flies enter a home, they usually hibernate in inaccessible areas between walls and in ceilings until spring when they emerge and seek access to the outdoors. The fly is extremely troublesome to home and business owners, but does not cause any true damage to structures, textiles, foods, or humans. Can it really be called extremely troublesome if it doesn't really do anything <laughs> they're just flying around like what are they doing they're and not doing anything. and they're not even flying around they're holding up in yeah. attics and stuff and these guys and walls and places that you can't see them uh it says piles of dead flies left in the walls can sometimes lead to secondary infestations of carpets or larder uh, beetles and rodents so maybe so that's why really they're they're only troublesome because they die in such large numbers that they attract other things they th- attract things that might actually be troublesome yeah like carpet bugs that's like it sounds bad. It sounds like bed bugs <laughs> for your carpet. I don't want that. Yeah. I know I don't want rats, so... Uh, anyway, there is a method of controlling these. Um, basically, they control the earthworm populations since mm. they uh, originate from earthworms within a mile of where they end up. Uh, once the Polenia rudis flies enter a home, it's almost impossible to kill enough of the flies to fully eradicate them. So, in order to prevent them from entering a house, all exterior cracks and openings should be caulked or sealed. This includes sealing light fixtures, electrical outlets, windows, and baseboards. Persistent (laughs) use of insecticides has also been shown to reduce fly numbers if if sprayed on the exterior of a home. However, these methods are not guaranteed for preventing infestations. So really, you have to seal up your house and then bomb the heck out of the inside. Yep. So maybe that's why they're extremely meddlesome. It's not because... It's just because you like you didn't invite them in, yeah. and now they're not leaving. <laughs> it's one thing if it's like a housefly. It's like, oh, well, it's just one of you. Yeah. I'll kill you, and that'll be it. Cluster flies come in clusters. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and when they come in clusters, they do not leave in clusters, oddly enough. <laughs> they, they stay in clusters. So, yeah. However, we also use these flies for uh, forensic entomology. Uh, unlike the majority of blowflies in the family Califoridae, Polynia rudis does not play a huge role in the medico-criminal f- subfield of forensic entomology. <laughs> oh, okay, so it doesn't help us there. Never mind. Don't know why. Don't know why this is a section then, Wikipedia. But more power to you. Just so you know, they have no significance in this area of the world. Great. You don't need to tell me that they're not significant. You can just say whatever. Um, while most blowflies are attracted to rotting or decomposing matter, Polenia rudis is solely parasitic on earthworms and is unable to compete complete larval development on carrion. Uh, this unique characteristic makes it uncommon to see this particular blowfly near forensic investigations. However, 
The urban subfield of forensic entomology has been closely monitoring Polonia rudis because of its tendency to infest buildings and its status as a potential disease vector. Urban entomology, which deals with the insects that affect man and his immediate environment, is responsible for investigating economic issues and civil proceedings involving anthropods. There have been several economically hampering cases of Polonia rudis infestations around the world. For example, in New Zealand, an entire city's reservoir tank was drained due to high levels of fecal coliform bacteria produced by mass amounts mm. of clusterflies. That's kind of gross. That's probably troublesome. A little bit. Yeah, that's yeah. very. That's pretty troublesome. <laughs> when there's so many flies in your water tank that they produce so much crap <laughs> that you are drinking fly crap. Yeah. That's crap. <laughs> now, due to cases like these, scientists have investigated the association of Polonia rudis and its disease vector capability. In 1973, a massive infestation of cluster flies in a German hospital triggered an investigation of the relationship between P. rudis and bacteria pathogen transmission. Careful examination of the flies revealed Polonia rudis is only capable of transmitting bacteria that causes opportunistic infections. These results indicate that mass infestations of cluster flies occur, occurring in sensitive areas, especially in hospitals, may cause a low but not neglectable health threat hmm. due to the transmission of bacterial pathogens. Okay. So they are a little bit of a pest in some instances. In most homes, they're yeah. really just kind of annoying, but in some more public domains, they can be a real pain. Yeah, if they get into the right places, they can do some unwanted things. Yeah, where should we go from here? Because I'll tell you, if we go to Carrion, we could possibly go to the Spider-Man villain of the same name, who is one of my favorites. But you could also check out some of the other links here. Stay on kind of insect world. Maybe see what the larger um, Polenia genus has to offer. Hmm. Or it's a shame that so many of these links are not to Wikipedia articles. I feel like maybe we should be able to fix that. <laughs> there should be some way, right? Like we should just like, take those I links out. I feel like out. it's just somebody doing it wrong. Maybe we should just fly this article, you know? We could. Put one of those one of those, you know, boxes at the top of the page saying this article is wrong in this way. <laughs> How do we do that? Never done that. Um, let's see. I don't know. I don't know how to, I don't know how to fly something. I've never flied anything. Right? Right? Don't yeah. make it easy. Maybe they got rid of that feature. Maybe. Hmm. I mean, I doubt could, that. That doesn't seem like a reasonable <laughs> thing to do at all. Could oh, it could uh go to the talk section. Yeah. So there's always a talk page for these things. Let's see. Ugh. A lot of praise. Going to my talk section. I <laughs> I was reminded of. Uh, the deletion of the Wikipedia Chronicles article, <laughs> and it bothers me that it's, it was requested to have a speedy deletion from Wikipedia. Like, not just like, hey, this is this article probably doesn't need to be here. It's like, hey, get this thing off of here as quickly as humanly possible <laughs> because it is just plaguing this... Website. It's insulting. I don't even want to look at it. <laughs> get out! Get out of here! This is one of the most offensive things I've come across. Okay, so how do we do stuff? <laughs> hmm. Maybe comments. A couple of comments down there at the bottom, where somebody clearly didn't know what they were doing and just <laughs> here's this. I mean, there can. Can comment, but would anybody see it or bother to actually do anything about it? I don't know. Mm. Let's just make a comment and 
copy and paste it and put it in every one of these subheadings, just to be sure. <laughs> that way we can't be wrong. I mean, we'll be there wrong like nine times, but we'll also be right once. Ooh, or that's maybe what we under need. editing? Yeah, let's put one under there. That's a little more... Or changes? Ooh, changes. That could be good. How do we, how do we phrase this delicately? <laughs> how about... Uh, the links within the article should be to other Wikipedia articles, not to external websites. Cite, cite them instead of direct linking. Yes. Okay. That should, that should be good. Every episode, we're finding a new way to improve Wikipedia. Now we're not just talking about them, we are part of the solution. We're doing it. We're making change <laughs> in the world here on this show. <laughs> Watching history happen, listening to it, listening to me eat food. <laughs> Alright, so where do we want to go? Um, let's carry on my wayward son. Okay. There will be Spider-Man when <laughs> we are done. Click here, really link to <coughs> this. Don't you load no more. Hmm. Well, it's a short one. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, carry on comes from the Latin caro, meaning meat, and it refers to the dead and decaying flesh of an animal. Lovely stuff. Uh, it's an important food source for large carnivores and omnivores in most ecosystems. And um, examples of carrion eaters, or scavengers as they are called, would be vultures, Hawks, eagles, hyenas, Virginia opossum, Tasmanian devils, coyotes, Komodo dragons, and burying beetles. So I, I didn't realize that hawks and eagles would be in the scavenger category. Yeah, I thought they I thought they killed for themselves. I didn't think they were just kind of like, well, this is here. Yeah. I'll eat it. That's fine. I thought eagles especially were hunters. Yeah. Well, that kind of makes a uh, kind of makes America look a whole lot different way, doesn't it? <laughs> I've also never heard of burying beetles. Yeah, that sounds cool. That kind of that kind of intrigues me. I mean, unfortunately, we don't seem to have a direct link to your uh, Spider-Man friends. Yeah, well, but we do have a direct link to William Shakespeare's play Julius Caesar <laughs> and William Shakespeare and stinkhorn mushrooms. <laughs> Never thought those two would be in the same article together, did you? Nope. Nope. Really didn't. <laughs> uh, okay, so... Yeah, speaking of stinkhorn mushrooms, some plants and fungi smell like decomposing carrion and attract insects that aid in reproduction. And plants that exhibit this behavior are known as carrion flowers. And they give one example, stinkhorn mushrooms. Hmm, that's an interesting trait. Kind of explains some smells that I've smelled in the past too, like in the woods. Oh yeah. Definitely smelled some things that were some f definitely some flowers, <laughs> but they smelled like dead animals. Yeah, I know I've heard of certain flowers that you know bloom once a year or like really rarely, and people wait around for them to open up, and they smell horrible, like yeah. death. And it's like, okay, why are you? Don't know why. Anticipating this. <laughs> It's kind of creepy, really. It comes yeah. down to like the fact that they're so obsessed with the idea of trying to smell this this dead flower, yeah. this death-smelling flower. <laughs> so there's a thing called Noahide Law, and for some reason it has its own heading in this article <laughs> because the thirty-count laws of Ula Talmudist include the prohibition of humans consuming carrion. This count is in addition to the standard seven law count and has been recently published from the Judeo-Arabic writing of Shmuel ben Hapni Gaon after having been lost for centuries. 
Okay. So don't know what Noah Hyde Law is <laughs> still. Didn't didn't bother to tell me that part. This but it gives me it gives me a link to Noah Hyde Laws. I don't know if I'm interested yeah. in that or not, but <laughs> now I'm just confused mostly. Huh. Well, we know one of them is hey, don't eat dead things. Which seems like a pretty pretty standard, you know, don't don't do that. You're a human. You yeah. can't you don't have those kind of gut bacteria. What do you think you are? <laughs> Some sort of Superman? Don't do that. Okay. So, where should we go from here? For uh, real. Well, I don't know. I could go for burying beetles or stinkhorn mushrooms. I do want to see what those burying beetles are about. I want to see why they bury. What do they bury? Or do they bury themselves? I was envisioning that they bury mm. themselves. They have like tunnels. Yeah, that could be. Or do they that. bury... Yeah, they might have ritual burial. I don't maybe, know. <laughs> maybe, they, maybe they just bury all of their things. Like they go out and they grab like an acorn and yeah. they roll it back and bury it somewhere. And yep. <laughs> then they go out and grab a little flower and bury seems, that too. Seems legit. Yep. <laughs> and then when they're, they're, they, they're dead, they take their carcasses and they bury them. Because they're they feed on carrion, so they know yeah. you know I shouldn't leave dead bodies out here. Something's gonna eat. <laughs> anyway, let's go see if any of this is true. <laughs> let's see if it is a Wally type beetle, or if it's Solifidae. <laughs> That's what it links us to. It's a family of beetles known commonly as large carrion beetles. Carrion beetles or burying beetles. So there are two subfamilies: Silph, Silphinae, and Necrophorinae. And the Necrophorines are sometimes known as sexton beetles. Uh, it's a relatively small number of species, around 200. And they're more diverse in the temperate region throughout. Although a few tropical endemics are known. And both families feed on decaying organic matter, as we have, you know, surmised from the last article. And they differ in parental care. And Solifidae are considered to be of importance to forensic entomologists. Because when they are found on a decaying body, they are used to help estimate a post-mortem interval. Okay, so... The family Sylphidae belongs to the order Cleopatra. Nice. I mean... <laughs> Cleop... Cleoptera. <laughs> they are commonly referred to as carrion beetles, or burying beetles, and are usually associated with carrion, fungi, and... <laughs> In the past, members of the family Agirtidae were included. This family has two subfamilies, Sylphinae and Necrophorinae. Uh, Necforte. Uh, <laughs> Necrophorinae. Yeah, there we go. The antenna is made up of 11 segments and is capitate, or ending in an abruptly capped club, in the necrophonae and has a more gradual club shape in the sylphonae. I didn't know capitate. I've never heard capitate. I've only heard of decapitate. decapitate. <laughs> now it makes sense, though, kind of. Yeah. Like, understanding what the shape is. Mm -hmm. uh, the subfamilies also uh, differ in behavior. Members of the subfamily sylphonae slow, show little to no care for their young and breed on large carrion. Necrophinae breed on small animal carrion and will bury themselves and their food to rear their offsprings in a biparental manner. <laughs> they are there are approximately 183 species in this family, which are found worldwide. Although they are commoner <laughs> in the temperate region, Nicophorus americanus known as the American Burying Beetle, is an endangered species. Well, there you go. Oh. That's why we haven't heard of this bloody thing. Yeah. All the ones that we have left were buried underground. Trying <laughs> to not be dead. Yeah, they have a picture of this thing, and it actually looks pretty cool. 
Looks kind of like a bumblebee. You think burying beetles would be a good, good metal name for like a metal cover band of yeah. of the Beatles? I think so. Like death metal. Death metal covers of the Beatles. Burying beetles. I think that sounds good. That sounds like a good, good, good idea. Yeah. All right. Next, next band idea. <laughs> Another band idea for the Wikipedia Chronicles. <laughs> the misguided band <laughs> pod- podcast about mispronouncing things. <laughs> yep. We. We are just a band-making machine. We are. We've had so many good band names on this show. <laughs> I don't even know how. Somebody out there, just run with these ideas. We're just going to keep spitting them out. Every week, at least, you know, two or three things. And maybe we'll accidentally say something that might also be a good band name that's not even on Wikipedia. <laughs> Who knows? Could be. Could be. That's a good name for a band. <laughs> Could be. Yeah. Actually, would be it would be kind of, kind of a good good name. Like I don't think I've. Hmm. All right. Could see, be. see, look, we're a machine. <laughs> anyway, we, we got we could go on for days. We could just we just, could just keep, do a whole podcast just, just spit, coming up with band names. Literally every word we would have said would have been a band name. Every <laughs> phrase, true. every sentence, mm-hmm. it could all it could all be, unless you know you stutter. That'd be kind of <laughs> that would be a kind of a bad band yeah. name. Yeah. I don't know. Might make you kind of an underfoot <laughs> figure. Um, there. Here's another band name for you. 265 million years old. There we go. It's great. Here's another one. Dating back to the. That was it. That could work. I could leave people in suspense, and they. Like, oh, what? I have to find out more. And each album could be a different just, title. Yeah. To fulfill. A <laughs> when we're dating back to this time. <laughs> could start out in like the you know bronze age you go into iron age you know it would all be concept albums yeah until eventually you got to an age where it was like contemporary music yeah and then you had you just start doing albums about future music Mm -hmm. that you don't know what what it is you (laughs) just start making it those would be the tough ones you gotta start playing for those the entire time you're doing the other ones yeah anyway uh oldest beetle fossils are uh, over 265 million years old, dating back to the Permian period. But the oldest fossil sulfid is that of N. Huator, dating around 10,500 years old, described in 1962. Hmm. Many sulfidae are flightless, although they do have wings, and this loss is thought to be as a result of changes in habitat over time. Researchers have found that most flight-capable species in this group feed on vertebrae carcasses, whereas flightless species will feed on soil invertebrates. Hmm. And they also found that egg production increased with flight loss because of a more limited food supply. That's interesting. And it says the word sylphid or sylph first seen in the 16th century in... Para, Paracelsus works refers to any race of spirits inhabiting the air and it dis- and it's and is described as mortal but lacking soul. The word is also related to the Latin word silva meaning slender graceful girl and the Greek word nymph meaning light airy movements. So these beetles lack soul. And let's see, they are found most abundant in the temperate zone. Um, that's where their diversity is also greater. And they are quite rare in the tropics, although there are species endemic to the region. And it is thought that ants, flies, and other carrion feeders outcompete them in these regions. Which would make sense. That would. And they vary in size from 7 to 45 millimeters. That's a pretty big bug. Yes, it is. That's a quite a big difference, too. Yeah. Go from little tiny to very, very big. And it says there are about 46 different species in North America of the Sylphidae. And there's a whole list of a bunch of them, and I'm not even going to try I'm not even going to try. That's good. That's a good move. <laughs> We've mispronounced enough on this podcast. You don't need... Let's just uh, just say that there's a lot of locations and a lot of 
uh, professions and a lot of necrophilia. Because <laughs> that's that would pretty much be a good way to sum up what exactly all those names are. Yep. I think. I think. <laughs> Alrighty. Uh, let's see. Sylphidae undergo holometabolis development. The development in the subfamily Sylphidae proceeds at a slower rate than that in Necrophinae. The Sylphidae life cycle takes approximately 26 to 58 days to go from an egg to an adult. The breakdown of this process is essential to forensic entomologists. The cycle takes 2 to 7 days after the egg is laid to hatch. And so the larva will develop through three instars on the carrion, lasting for 10 to 30 days. After that time period is up, the third instar larvae will venture away from the detrius to pupate. Pupation takes 14 to 21 days and is the major part of metamorphosis where a grandiose change occurs. During this stage, the wings become fully developed and sexual maturity is reached, sometimes called the imago, or adult stage, where the cycle is then repeated. The necrophinae cycle is generally quicker. Oviposition is done near the carcass and takes 12 to 48 hours for the eggs to hatch into larvae. The amount of food and parental care exhibited help determine the length of the larval stage. Pupation in this subfamily lasts 6 to 8 days and is completed in the soil. The adult necrophinae will emerge from the soil and venture to find food and a mate. I like the little picture here. Oh, yeah. These guys are really cool looking. They're like hardcore looking. Like, those shells just look rough. They look like coal. Yeah. They look like little bits of coal. <laughs> with they look, look like they're uh, all, they, like they've been out in the rain or something. Yeah. Like it's yeah. a little leather jacket. And I also like how they're, they look like they, they're well at wearing helmets. Yeah. And like their eyes are so huge and so just kind of built seamlessly into their head mm-hmm. that it all is just like one giant gold orb. <laughs> like you can tell their head and their eyes are in there, but it's just yeah. so like streamlined. It literally, it literally looks like they have like a visor on or some sort. Mm-hmm. It's cool. Yeah, these are very, very cool little beetles here. And this, these, they are of the Necrophila Americana species. So these are the ones that are uh, endangered, right? Um, I be- yes, I believe probably. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's unfortunate. But, uh, hey, I mean, there's a lot of competition for dead stuff in America. <laughs> that's true. Um, but yeah, as far as reproduction goes, the necrophorinae are known for the habit of locating a carcass and burying it by unearthing uh. the soil beneath it. Huh. So that's an interesting way of going about it. You know, instead of like digging and then dragging it over, they're just like, all right, let's just dig underneath it and then it's going to be underground. And then the burying behavior has seemingly evolved to prevent competition from other insects such as fly maggots. It has been observed that the cooperation of the two parent beetles leads to breeding success. And more likely than not, a breeding pair will work together, but in cases where there is large carrion males... Wait. But in cases where there is large carrion males try to boost their reproduction by emitting pheromones. Something's wrong in there, but I don't know. Anyway. They've got a comma. Yeah, something's not broken up right. Uh, in this way, uh, they will father more offspring, but the reproductive success of the primary female steadily declines. And sometimes, where there is a large carcass, the likelihood of intense competition from flies leads to communal breeding. There appears to be a truce between females who would normally compete for the males. And in these cases, cooperative behavior extends to females caring for each other's offspring. And at the height of breeding season, pairs of beetles may compete for the carrion. The losing pair will be ejected from the carrion, and if any eggs have been laid, they are killed so the new female can lay their, her own. Wow. That's pretty intense. Yeah. 
That's some like, pretty vicious competition <laughs> there. Yeah. All right, behavior and ecology. Uh, so for food, they eat dead stuff. I'm not really yep. going to go into that one. You know, <laughs> big surprise. That's that's pretty much it. But how do they defend themselves? How do they get around? How do they compete? Well, we know they compete through the whole egg pushing thing. Let's let's check out their defense here. Beetles have many different defense weapons to protect them against predators. Uh, the members of the Sylphidae are no different, and they have many modifications that allow them to thrive in different ecological niches, including color warnings, uh, chemical defenses, and also parental care. Sylphid beetles are usually dark in color, consisting of gold, black, and brown. This dark coloring allows them to blend into their environs. One species of Sylphidae uses a physical mean of defense. <laughs> Doesn't tell you what. Just a physical mean of defense. <laughs> just gets right on up there. Fights off any threats. It's like, it, it's like a movie where the good guy goes up to the bad guy. Yep. And you see him about to fight like him. he's puffing down his chest. And then it cuts to the end. And then the bad guy's laying on the ground. Yep. It's like, <laughs> all right. There's no, I took care of him. There's no <laughs> No more to say. That's it. <laughs> Just a nice, good, good, clean fight. Nothing to wonder about here. Yep. I Just a resolution. defeated him with my hands. <laughs> or maybe something else. Who knows? Who knows? You'll never Some know. Some physical way I have defeated this guy. Yep. So, And that's that one species. You know, he has it. <laughs> um, Oisopatoma. In Aquiqualis holds its elytra over its back when it flies. Don't know. Oh, the back of the elytra are bright blue, and when they ex they are exposed, it makes the beetle look much larger. Huh. So after landing, the beetle folds its wings, and the blue color vanishes. Many sylphidae have bright orange coloring on their elytra, which may serve as a warning to other predators. Hmm. Some sulfidae beetles secrete a chemical from a rectal gland that consists of acids and alcohols. Hmm. The secretion is a strong foul odor, odor, and may be topically irritating. Now the species Necrides surname surnames surname <laughs> surname and and ensis. Sir Nemesis. It's my nemesis, that's for sure. It's, but it's in, my nemesis. With regard to pronunciation, <laughs> that ejects this secretion spray and can rotate the end of its abdomen to spray in all directions. Oh, snap. Wow. Okay. I see how you well, do that's it. that's something cool. Yeah. Uh, locomotion. Uh, walking, obviously, because most of them can't fly. <laughs> uh, but they are also able to travel great distances to find carcasses to breed and feed on. Uh, beetles have two sets of wings, the elytra, those ones used for scaring off predators and making them look bigger than they are, hmm. and the hind wings. The hind wings are membranous and are modified for flying or for swimming, surprisingly enough. There are some sylphidae who are able to fly, but others have lost this ability throughout evolution. Uh, when an animal dies, hydrogen sulfide and some cyclic compounds are released. Sylphidae use their sense of smell to locate carcasses from a long distance by chemoreceptors on their antennae. And those are adapted to detect the chemicals given off by recently deceased objects and critters. At a short distance, the end organs of the palpi detect the odors. Odors. You can't say odors. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Sylphid beetles are usually more active at night, uh, and that may help reduce competition. Hmm. Though I don't know. I feel as though <laughs> a lot of these other uh, carrion feeders that we've been uh, looking at are kind of nocturnal-ish. Yeah. But whatever. It seems to be a good time of the day to be feeding on these things for sure so hmm, i don't know yeah uh as far as the relationship with humans um they are actually not considered a nuisance to humans i feel huh. like most beetles aren't considered a nuisance i mean maybe sometimes but i don't know if i ever see a beetle i'm like hey cool it's a little beetle yeah 
doesn't really bother me. Yeah. It's not going to eat me until I'm dead, <laughs> so I don't, I don't care. Yeah, I usually just kind of take a beetle and, like, you know, take it outside. Yeah, brush it, it off. Go. I mean, it's not like the response that a fly receives where it's like, ah. Oh. Get out of here. <laughs> just going to keep going around making that noise, huh? And that's yeah. not going to fly. <laughs> and, um, but, yeah, they... Help, they actually help the environment by laying their eggs on carcasses and the larva break down detritus, which prevents accumulation of deceased organisms. And then the carcasses are kept out of sight and foul odors are prevented when the beetles bury it under the ground. Which, yeah, I, can, I guess I didn't really think about that, but burying the dead things, that's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, bugs are doing it for a reason. And then this also reduces the surface area for flies to lay their eggs and decreases the fly population, which is also a good thing. So, yeah, these beetles are pretty cool. They're okay in my book. And it says some of them occupy human-inhabited areas and become pests to farmers by using crops as a second source of nutrients. So I could, mm. I could see that. And, yeah, and apparently there's a species in Europe that feeds on beets and a species in, I guess, America that feed on pumpkin, spinach, and sugar beet. Interesting. They are known to have a mutualistic relationship with other organisms. And they have a mutual relationship with phoretic mites. Mm. Mites from the genus... Poecilocurus yep. produce deuteronymphs. Uh, hey, that's a good uh, b- me- metal band name too. Deuteronymphs. It's like Deuteronomy, but it's <laughs> with nymphs instead. So it sounds it sounds more it sounds rock and roll. Metal, yeah. Yeah. Somehow, uh, they crawl on the beetle and are transported to carrion. Once they arrive at the carrion, deuteronymphs leave the adult beetle and proceed to feed on nearby fly eggs and immature larvae and then the mites help the beetles reduce the amount of competitors on the carrion and with less competition both species are able to reproduce successfully underground so that's a pretty cool little relationship they got going on there sort of yeah so sylphidae are one of several families kind of like the last article where uh, they mentioned this, and it was of no consequence. <laughs> uh, forensic research actually does kind of use these in solving crimes. They're very useful in meadow criminal entomology. Uh, many of the methods in determining stages of development are subjective. Fortunately, recent studies have found a new way of determining what stage of development sylphid larvae are in by measuring the maximum cranial width and other heavily slurratized slurratized areas of the larvae instead of measuring just the length, which is subject to change with each larva. Hmm. Also in the future, entomologists will explore the social behavior of the beetles to a greater degree. Members of family Sylphidae are typically the first of the Colopterans to come in contact with carrion. Sylphidae larvae are opportunistic predators that will feed on dipitrin eggs, larvae, and on the carcass itself. This presents a problem in the determination of post-mortem interval because sylphidae are known to eradicate other species from carrion. And by eliminating the first colonizing species, sylphidae can give an incorrect post-mortem interval. Wow. Vicious little guys. Yeah. All right. Okay, well, about does it here. Okay. Um, alright, so... There you have it, from Polenia Rudis to Sylphidae. Sylphidae. (laughs) Alright. Sylphidae, it's not yet tomorrow. It's a buggy, it's a buggy week here. (laughs) On Wikipedia Chronicles. Yep. We hope you enjoy it. Hope you had a good time, folks. Yeah. And go to Facebook and like us and follow us. Go to iTunes, review us. 
and go to our website and get the new episodes and follow along with the articles and whatnot. Got a lot going on over there. Yeah. And I'd like to thank Louis Armstrong for our theme song and Frenchie's String Band for our outro song. Ooh, Frenchie. Yeah. So thanks again for joining us. I was Eric. And I was John. And this was the Wikipedia Chronicles. Wow. Bugs are, bugs are neat. Yeah. There's a lot of bugs you don't know about. Or forgot about or something. There are quite a lot of bugs out there that we will never see. That's true. I kind of felt like a lot of these uh, bugs we were talking about tonight were... Um, ones that I kind of like were on the periphery yeah. you kind of knew they were there but when you think of a dead thing you're like oh there's flies yeah flies are sending yeah. out flies and there's like a vulture that comes down yeah. you're not thinking eagles and hawks and you know and, and these are like eagles crawling up and being like yo what up Beagles coming up and like putting yeah, yeah, and literally like kicking everything else out of the body that's, that's not what you think of first no yeah. that's different so yeah, that was a, that was a good learning experience for me. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Shame we don't see that kind of thing around here. I mean, not really a shame. I don't really want to go examining car- carcasses yeah. now or anything. I mean, I'm glad I know about this. But yeah, it's nice that there's a, an article on Wikipedia that we can go to to look at, you know, to learn about the things, but. Yeah, definitely not about to go carcass hunting. Yeah, I don't need no hands-on experience. I'm good, thank you. I will keep my distance from this. <laughs>